It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bring you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we've got a ton to talk about today, including the future of Teddy Bridgewater, uh, but before we get into to any of that, I want to jump in with the NCAA tournament. Uh, we had our show on Monday. We missed our show on Wednesday, so I wasn't able to recap and talk about what happened on the Monday night NCAA tournament. And let me tell you, this was not exactly how I expected the game to go. Gonzaga was completely dominant for none of it. And and the the, the big surprise was they were so good this season that they were expected to kind of take over and and be able to be the number one team. And a lot of people were thinking that they were going to run over the Baylor Bears. Now, I wasn't one of those people. I think the Baylor Bears were a more well-rounded team. They had a deeper bench, and I really liked that about them. So my pick from the beginning was Baylor over Gonzaga in the national championship. And I'm going to brag a little bit here because I was right. Baylor took down Gonzaga and absolutely showed them both ways that they are the better team offensively and defensively now Gonzaga may have shot better in the game uh, from the two-point line from the inside but Baylor dominated the three-point battle shooting 44 percent which isn't really even that big of a stretch for a game for them it's not like they shot that well and it's kind of a surprising game this is how they play this is the Baylor team that we've come to know and the surprise was that Gonzaga didn't show up to the occasion now, Gonzaga played decently well. Jalen Suggs showed up to the occasion, but Drew Timmy kind of disappeared. He was really the matchup that was the outlier for, for both of these teams. I mean, the guard play was on paper seemingly similar, but Drew Timmy had the obvious advantage for the Gonzaga Bulldogs. I mean, there was no other way to put it. He just had the advantage. The Baylor Bears were able to neutralize him, and some really athletic defensive players, Flo Thamba, Jonathan Chamwa-Chachwa, those were the two guys who got it done on the inside. I mean, when Mark Vitale was on him, he did what he could, but Drew Timmy was neutralized, left to 12 points, and even though he was 5 for 7, the foul trouble that he got into, the turnovers that he created... I mean, that was a big reason why Gonzaga struggled so much. Uh, Baylor had a ton of steals. They had eight steals throughout the game. And let's keep in mind, two of those came from Jonathan Chamochachua, one from Flager, one from Mayer. So eight of those, or five of those eight steals coming off the bench. So really good defense coming off the bench. So when Baylor subbed somebody out, when they had to get somebody into the game, it, it wasn't something that hurt them. They... They were able to get these guys on the bench into the game, and they were producing. They were super productive. Flagler had 13 points off the bench. Jonathan Chamwachachwa played some incredible defense. So, I mean, Baylor took control throughout the entire game, and to me, I'm surprised that Gonzaga didn't show up. I'm surprised that Corey Kispert was 2-for-7, and the rest of the team made three total threes. I mean, they didn't do enough to win the game against such a good defensive team in Baylor, and and that was shocking to me. I mean, Drew Timmy looks like he could have potentially been an NBA draft pick. He was rising up the boards. He dominated Evan Mobley. I mean, he looked like he was going to be able to dominate this Baylor defense with... Uh, Flo Thamba's good. 
And I'm not going to argue Flo Thamba or Jonathan Chamachachwa. They're both good defenders. But Drew Timmy had faced tougher defenders and did more versus them. And and he wasn't able to do it against Baylor. It, it just was saddening to see seemingly, I mean, what a lot of people have been saying is one of the best teams in all of college basketball history not able to show up to the occasion in the most important game. I mean, the Baylor Bears, they showed up to the occasion. And, I mean, you might say the Baylor Bears beat the best team in, in college basketball history, but Baylor might be better than Gonzaga just head-to-head. I mean, if you put this in through a seven-game series, the way these two teams played, I don't think Baylor loses that series. I mean, they were completely dominant. They shot the ball well. Davion Mitchell didn't even shoot the ball well, and other guys were able to get it done. So, I mean, the Baylor Bears, they were constructed so artfully, and everything worked so well. There are three dominant guards. Uh, Davion Mitchell, obviously, he's going to be a high-rising draft player. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Jared Butler has the potential to go into the draft this year or stick around another year. And Maki Oteague, all three of those guys were absolutely dominant all year long. And if one of those guys couldn't get it done, if one of those guys kind of fell apart, there were so many other contributors, so many other guys off the bench who could really contribute and really score. Matthew Mayer had a super good game during the tournament early on. Adam Flagler as well was one of the leading scorers throughout Baylor Bears tournament. So Baylor had so many different weapons, and even though Gonzaga did have some good top-end guys and Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, and Jalen Suggs, it just wasn't enough when you looked at the rest of the roster. I mean, Joel Ayayi, it doesn't look like he's ready for the NBA to me, and I know that he's been thinking about it. I didn't think he was NBA ready while watching him play. Andrew Nembhart, same thing. I don't think these guys are NBA ready. They if they stick around, I mean, I, I think they could potentially really build upon what they did this year. Even without Jalen Suggs, even without Corey Kispert, I think they can really build upon what they did. And Gonzaga will be a team knocking on the door next year. I mean, they're probably the number one team heading into next year with the pieces that they have. Now, what do I think they need to do better? They need to get a bench. I mean, they need to get contributors off the bench, get a deep unit. Baylor showed that they didn't have to play tired because if they needed to go off the bench, if Davion Mitchell, who seemingly was their best player during the, during the tournament, had to go to the bench, somebody else was going to step in and they were going to contribute hugely. I mean, we saw 27 minutes from Vital, 16 from Flo Thamba, and I mean, the bench was similar. Chachua, 16, Flagler, 22, 16 from Mayer. I mean, the, the minutes for Gonzaga need to be a little more distributed, in my opinion. And you can beat teams that are are not as deep. I mean, there's going to be a deep team in the tournament. I mean, you're just going to run into one at some point in time. And even though Gonzaga didn't run into a deep team until the championship game, I mean, that that's what it shows you. It, it hurts not being that deep team, not being that team that can rely on some of their bench guys. So next year, Mark Few has a little bit of work to do. He needs to find some more bench guys. He needs to hope that Drew Timmy, Andrew Nemhart, and Joella Ayai all stay until next year. Now, Jalen Suggs, he's going to the draft. He's going to be a top five pick. There's no reason for him to stay. Corey Kispert, he's a senior. He's going to be a lottery pick most likely the way he played this season. I, I'm not a big Corey Kispert guy. Not a big fan. I think he is decently good, uh, but I think 
around 20 to 25 is more where I would want to pick Corey Kispert. Uh, but he should go to the draft as well. So Gonzaga should have uh, seemingly a decent amount of guys carrying over until next year. For Baylor, it's it's probably going to be another good year. I mean, Jared Butler has the opportunity to come back or go to the NBA. Davion Mitchell's going to the NBA. Uh, Mark or Maki Oteague's gone. So the top three guys, three of them could all be gone. So it could be all three of those guys wiped away. But Flagler's going to step into a really big role next season, and I know he's going to contribute. Matthew Mayer is going to step into a really big role next season, and I know he's going to contribute. And Jonathan Chamwa Chachwa is going to step into a huge role next season. I mean, Chachwa is a sophomore. He's going to really step into a, a big role. And and Baylor has guys off the bench, young guys, young recruits that they can replace those bench guys with. So, I mean, Baylor was really, really, really good this year. Obviously, they won the national championship. But next year, watch the carryover. If Jared Butler sticks around, Baylor is my favorite to win it all. Now, obviously, that's a way, way, way too early prediction onto an NCAA tournament that is a year away. But I'm saying if Jared Butler sticks around, this Baylor team can really dominate. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the same sort of outcome this year with Baylor dominating the competition throughout the entire tournament. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about the risers and the fallers in the NBA draft based on the March Madness tournament. Stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we talked about the NCAA championship game between Baylor and Gonzaga uh, during the last break. Now, I want to talk about the the NCAA tournament and the risers and fallers, the teams that that went up in the or the players that went up and the players that draft stock went down based off of this draft. Now, for me, the guy who rose the most throughout this entire NBA draft, uh, throughout the entire NCAA tournament in the NBA draft is Davion Mitchell. Now, Davion Mitchell, I think he was a capable player to get drafted early on in the draft, one way or another. I thought he was one of the best players in all of basketball. In, in college, defensively, offensively, I mean, he is an absolute stud. And what he did for the Baylor Bears this year was absolutely incredible. So seeing what Davion Mitchell was able to do, I, I have to say he's going to catapult into the draft based off of his March Madness. I mean, he was incredible leading this Baylor team. He was one of the best players all year long, I mean, regardless of the tournament. But he really showed and he really shined 14 points per game on the season, five and a half assists. He was efficient. He shot the ball well, over 44% from three, 51.1% from the field. His one issue is his free throw shooting. I mean, that's where he struggled. He hasn't been a good free throw shooter throughout his college basketball career. And as his three-point percentage has risen, his free throw percentage has slowly dropped. So Davion Mitchell is going to have to figure that out. But, I mean, as far as we saw, he shot the free throw decently well. He's not a guy who really goes to the the line too much, but anybody in the NBA should be able to shoot a free throw. So Davion Mitchell needs to figure that out, but he is on the rise. Somebody who's on the fall is Cade Cunningham. Now, Cade Cunningham, in my eyes, is still the number one overall draft pick. He's still the best player in college basketball, but when facing off against two much weaker competitions in Liberty and Oregon State, he struggled. 
He shot 21.4% against Liberty. He shot 30% for, uh, uh, from the field against Oregon State. He still had 15 points and 24 points. He still led his team, and, and the defenses were going after him. But it does hurt him when some of the other guys are rising. I think Cade Cunningham is one of the best players that we've seen in the last couple of years. I, not Regardless of last year, I think last year he would have been the number one overall draft pick. The year before, he probably would have been the number one overall draft pick. And that's just how good he is. So this does, I think, hurt his draft stock a little bit. His performance wasn't the best, but if you look at his whole season, 20.1 points per game, six rebounds, three and a half assists, he's got great court vision, he's got great size and strength, I believe him to be the number one overall draft pick by a mile. So maybe it hurts him, but I don't think it hurts him too bad. Uh, Somebody on the rise is going to be Jalen Suggs, Gonzaga. Jalen Suggs hit a big time game winning three point shot, and I think he was already going to be a top five NBA draft pick, but to me, he's kind of put himself into that top three mix. Now, Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, I think they're going to be hit a little bit uh, because they are in the G League. I think it's going to be a little consequential for them. Maybe they're talented enough to be the number one overall draft pick. Maybe they're good enough to be that talented, but we didn't get to see them on the biggest stage. We didn't get to see them during March Madness, and we got to see Cade Cunningham. We got to see Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs, Keon Johnson, Davion Mitchell. Jalen Johnson wasn't there, but I mean, we got to see most of these top recruits on the biggest stage, and that's what these NBA teams are, are looking for a lot of the time is how are these guys going to perform when the spotlight is on? And for Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, they weren't able to perform. But Jalen Suggs, he performed while the spotlight is on. In the national championship game, he scored 22 points on 53% shooting. Pretty good, if you ask me. Uh, on the season, he was really efficient, 14.4 points per game, 5 rebounds, 4.5 assists. Did it all on 50.3% shooting, so he made more than half of his shots. Jalen Suggs was good all year long. His 3-point shot against UCLA proved that he has that clutch gene that he is a closer, and something that a lot of teams is are missing is a closer. I mean, how much of a difference would the Milwaukee Bucks be if they had a real-life closer, if they had somebody who could close out a game and hit that big-time shot? I mean, I think it would be a tremendous difference-maker. Jalen Suggs has proven in this tournament, in the biggest spotlight, that he can be a closer. Now, sure, they lost to Baylor by 16 points in the national championship game, but Jalen Suggs fought. 22 points for him in that game, two steals. I mean, he did everything that he could. He shot the ball well, 53%, 40% from three. So Jalen Suggs did what he could. Now, we know Jalen Suggs is an athlete. We saw him on the football field in high school. He was one of the highest-ranked recruits in high school. He is going to be an insane athlete, and we know, based, based on him being a quarterback, he's got some good passing vision. He's got the ability to thread the needle, and he's going to make those really nice passes. Jalen Suggs has moved up the board for me. To me, he's the number two prospect. I like Evan Mobley. I really like Evan Mobley, but I think there's a lot of work that Evan Mobley can do. Yes, he is the best big man in the draft. I mean, I think it's quite clear there's no other big man anywhere near his talent level. But seven foot, 210 pounds, he needs to put on some weight. He needs to be more efficient offensively. And defensively, I mean, he was dominated by Drew Timmy uh, against Gonzaga. So Evan Mobley had some really great games in the tournament, and he also had some really bad games in the tournament. 
And against NBA talent, I mean, Drew Timmy isn't going to be a dominant NBA talent. So if that's going to happen to him against a lot of other NBA talented type players, it's worrisome in the slightest. So Evan Mobley, I think, takes a little bit of a hit this year. Um, Even though he did shoot the ball well, he did look good during the tournament. He needs to develop his three-point shot. 30% from from three this season, he really didn't shoot the the three-pointer well, only made one three-pointer throughout the entire tournament. So Evan Mobley, even though you are a seven-foot forward, I want to see that three-pointer develop. I want to see a little bit more weight put on. I mean, he's almost there. He's almost a complete product, and I think he is very similar to Anthony Davis, but Anthony Davis is a much more efficient scorer from outside and from, from the free throw line. And yes, I am comparing him to Anthony Davis. That is a hard comparison for a college forward who is a freshman. I I understand that. I think he has that potential, though. I think he has the potential to develop into that, but there's a lot of things that need to change. And he's almost there, but I think Jalen Suggs and Cade Cunningham are both a little bit more complete, a little bit more well-rounded. Now, there's a couple other players who I think really let their draft uh, stock go to the moon. Uh, The first one is Johnny Juzang. Johnny Juzang played incredible throughout the tournament. And last season, he didn't get really any playing time for Kentucky. This season, he took over as the main man for UCLA. I I mean, he's probably going to come back. He's probably going to be back another year. I think that's the best bet for him to develop another year in the same system with the same guys uh, rather than going to the NBA. But Johnny Juzang put himself on the map. And if he has another season similar to that, I mean, he could rocket himself into a lottery-type pick. He is that talented. He has that capability. He has a good size. He's got good strength. Everything about Johnny Juzang is pretty well-rounded. Now, he just needs to build up a little bit. He just needs to get more experience, more playtime. His explosion during the NCAA tournament, you can't expect that to happen on a consistent basis. It's a small sample size to look at, but when you see a guy play at that level... I mean, you have to to watch. You have to keep your eyes on it. Uh, another guy who I think took a or skyrocketed up uh, the draft board this this time around is going to be Aaron Henry. Now, Aaron Henry only played the first play-in game for the NCAA tournament. He didn't really have too much. Uh, when it came to the NCAA tournament, but he had a really good outing, a well-rounded outing against UCLA. I mean, he was one of the only reasons why Michigan State had the lead that they did, and even though Michigan State crumbled, I think Aaron Henry has solidified himself as a first-round, early second-round draft pick. I mean, he showed that he's got the body, he's got the strength, the size. I mean, let's talk about this. Six foot six, 210 pounds. 210 pounds, that's the same weight as Evan Mobley, who's 7 feet tall. So Aaron Henry can definitely get it done offensively and defensively. His Big Ten tournament also played a big factor in that. Uh, And, I mean, leading up to the tournament, big game against Michigan, knocking off Michigan, big game against Illinois. So I think Aaron Henry also is going up the draft boards a little bit based on his end-of-season performances. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we've got a little bit more to talk about, so stay tuned. Sean Miller has finally been fired from his role as the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats. 
Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Breed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bring you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, the Arizona Wildcats girls basketball team was one game away from winning the national championship. The Arizona Wildcats boys basketball team was dealing with sanctions and was unable to play in the Pac-10, Pac-12 tournament. So Arizona had very different men's and women's basketball teams, clearly. So what is the issue with this Arizona team then? Why did the Arizona men's team have so much issue while the Arizona women's team had so much success? Well, we can bring this all back to Sean Miller and what he's been doing as a coach for the Arizona Wildcats. I mean, he has dealt with a ton of FBI investigations, firings, I mean, a lot of investigations by the NCAA over bribery, over giving money to players in in return for them signing and joining the Arizona Wildcats. We know DeAndre Ayton was a little part of this, but these were going to, these sanctions were going to continue. There was going to be consequences at some point and I mean, eventually Sean Miller was going to part ways with Arizona, and it just so happened that next year was the final year of his contract. The Board of Regents for the Arizona Wildcats decided that they were not going to bring him back, that they did not want to extend him after his contract was up, and Sean Miller knew that it was going to be his last season, so there was no real reason for him to stick around. Uh, This is a great move for Arizona. I'm going to tell you why. The Wildcats needed to move on from Sean Miller. I mean, he has been dragging them down with all of these investigations, with all of these problems for the last multiple years. Now, yes, he built something special here. He did a great job here, but I mean, the same type of deal as what happened with Rick Pitino in Louisville, there needed to be some sort of separation. And Rick Pitino is now having some success. He's got a new team with Iona. They made the tournament this year. So there's some success now for Rick Pitino, and he doesn't have his hands in the pockets of all the players. So for Sean Miller, same type of deal. Arizona needed to move on, and Sean Miller needs to get a restart. He needs to either get an NBA job, which isn't a tough call, isn't a bad call for him. He's very capable. He's very qualified for an NBA job, but he needs to figure out something different than running a big-time men's college basketball program. Because with all the bribery, with all the the violations that he committed, that his assistants committed, that everybody around him committed, uh, he just can't be in charge of something that big. And I doubt another team of that magnitude, the size of Arizona, is going to bring in a guy like Sean Miller who has had all of these things happen in his past, who has had all of these problems, who has had all of these allegations. I mean... Why would anybody want to bring him in, no matter how good of a coach he is? For the NBA, it's a little different. He's not going to be a head coach. He's going to be an assistant if if that's the route he chooses. He could potentially go the same route as Rick Pitino, take a couple years off, and then return in a small program and make little tiny tournament runs with that program. Maybe Rick Pitino builds something bigger there, helps out some younger, smaller-named players who aren't able to get to the big-time schools, uh, helps them develop. I mean, that's what Rick Pitino is there for. And that's what he's good for. So he doesn't have to bribe. He doesn't have to recruit differently than he did at Louisville. Or he, he, he can just talk to the players like a coach. And the bribery needs to stop in college basketball. 
obviously the players need to be paid. Obviously, there needs to be some sort of compensation for, for these players' times. It takes so much time, so much energy, and it makes the school so much money uh, that the players should definitely be compensated, but Sean Miller shouldn't be the one compensating them, especially illegally. And even though the NCAA has some really messed up rules, some rules that I definitely don't agree with, I, I don't agree with what happened last year uh, with Penny Hardaway uh, and James Wiseman. James Wiseman shouldn't have been suspended. He shouldn't have been kicked out of the NCAA because Penny Hardaway helped his family out uh, before he was even a coach. So let's let's talk about Sean Miller. He's moving on. His bribery is done. He's not going to get a big-time job, at least for the, the meantime, at least for the time being with another big-time program like Arizona. But again, he could build up a program. He's that good of a coach. He's got recruiting that is, I mean, without the money, without the bribery, who knows? But, I mean, I'm sure his name carries enough weight. His skill level of being a coach carries enough weight that he can get a restart. But it's going to have to be at a smaller school, at a school that is is – nowhere near the the size or the talent level that Arizona is. Now for Arizona, they need to move on and they need to find a new hire. And this is a tough, tough job because Arizona is a very attractive job opportunity with a little bit of a twist. I mean, they're a high level program with great recruiting, great fans. They won a national championship not too long ago. Arizona is a good program. And Sean Miller hasn't tarnished the Arizona program completely. Now, will there be future sanctions, future things put against the University of Arizona? Who knows? I mean, that is a big-time question. There weren't sanctions put against Sean Miller. I mean, there were sort of sanctions put this year, uh, but is that going to be the end? I mean, with Sean Miller gone, it should be. Sean Miller was the one benefiting the most rather than the school uh, or the players who are going to be penalized for it. So, Hopefully they don't do any sanctions for the University of Arizona later on, uh, but a new coach is going to have to keep all of that in mind, that any of that stuff can happen, and even if he is having one of the best seasons in college basketball, if something they find up or something that gets dug up from the past, from Sean Miller's past, comes back to bite Arizona, I mean, it could affect the future and, and the teams of the future. So that's definitely something that new coaches would have to consider. But this is a Pac-12 program, a big-time Pac-12 program. Uh, usually, they're a NCAA tournament team. Obviously, this year was a little bit different, but they're a pretty good fixture in the college basketball community. So they're going to need to find a replacement that is a big-time replacement. I mean, it's it, it, you can't miss on this coach. This guy has to be able to reach the same levels as Sean Miller without the bribery, without all of the violations. And that's a tough ask for, for the Wildcats to find that guy. But, I mean, they have to. They can't have another slump. They can't fall into the cellar of the Pac-12 because of what has happened in the fall apart from Sean Miller. They need to be able to rebuild and move past all of this. And I think they're going to be able to at some point soon. Uh, but who knows when that time is going to come. Sean Miller left a lasting mark on the program and in a good way and a bad way. I mean, they had a former number one overall draft pick in DeAndre Ayton just a few years ago. How did he get to Arizona? Well, there might have been some bribery involved. But regardless, Sean Miller had a lasting legacy. And this next guy, this next girl, whoever replaces Sean Miller has to be able to match that. And an NCAA tournament in the next three years is a must for Arizona. Because, 
You can't keep fans waiting and waiting and waiting for an NCAA tournament and still think they're going to be as diehard, still think they're going to be as faithful. So Arizona needs to make a move very, very soon. But I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I've got a lot more to talk about. Daniel Jones has a big season next year for his career. We're going to talk all about that. Stay tuned. Daniel Jones has a ton to prove this next season. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable sports, the debatable content in all sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we already talked a lot about college basketball. We talked about Sean Miller being fired from the University of Arizona, some risers and fallers from the NCAA tournament in next year or in this year's NBA draft. And we also talked about the NCAA national championship game. Now, I want to talk some NFL football. Daniel Jones, the starting quarterback of the New York Giants, has a lot to prove in the next season. New York Giants spent big time to bolster the lineup around Daniel Jones to make sure that this team was in the best shape possible coming into this season. Now, some new additions for the New York Giants include Kenny Galladay, a superstar wide receiver from the Detroit Lions. We've seen what he's been able to do. John Ross, who is a speedster. Uh, He hasn't really been able to show too much of his talent, but he has a ton of talent. They brought in Adore Jackson. They brought in Logan Ryan. They also brought in or they re-signed, extended Leonard Williams to a massive contract extension. This team has to be ready to compete. And now that it's Daniel Jones's third year, he has no more excuses. There are no more excuses for Daniel Jones because he has to capitalize on the type of quarterback that he can be. Can he be the guy who the New York Giants believed he could be when they traded up, moved up to an absurd draft position to draft him? I mean, he was expected to be a 10, 15, 20th overall draft pick. He was drafted 6th overall. So Daniel Jones has a ton of expectations. In his first two seasons, he hasn't reached those expectations. His first season was a little bit better than his last, but his problems are still there. In last season, he played 14 games. He had 2,943 yards, which is not great. He wasn't able to get too many yards down the field. About a 62% completion percentage, 11 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, 8 fumbles. So a big issue for Daniel Jones is he just can't manage to keep the ball. He turns the ball over way too much. And I'll be honest, I don't believe in Daniel Jones' development. Now, Josh Allen is kind of the same story. Josh Allen didn't look like he was going to be able to develop into an NFL quarterback his first two years in the league, and and then he did. But for Josh Allen, he was a great runner, and he didn't have this turnover problem. Daniel Jones hasn't shown that he's even made any adjustments to this turnover problem. Now, yes, he did have 18 fumbles last season compared to a total of 11 this season. 18 to 11 is a ton more than any quarterback should have. Daniel Jones has to control the ball better, has to not fumble it. And his touchdown numbers were way down, and that was a big concern of mine. He had 24 touchdowns his rookie season. Last season, he dropped that number down to 11. Now, sure, Saquon Barkley was out. They didn't have the best weapons, but Daniel Jones had to have been able to put more than 11 touchdowns. I mean, that's less than one per game. 
and Daniel Jones played more games last season than the year before. I think Daniel Jones is a similar case to Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen never got a chance. I mean, he was drafted in the first round uh, by the Arizona Cardinals, and he got a couple opportunities, and he was traded around a couple times. He went to the Miami Dolphins, got a few opportunities there, but he never really showed that he could develop and really be a superstar uh, NFL quarterback, and that's really what you're looking for, especially if you're drafting a first-round guy. Daniel Jones was the sixth overall pick two years ago. His third season, he has to show up. He has to shine, and and this is big time for him. I mean, it could be the end of his career as a New York Giant if he doesn't rise to the occasion this year. If you look at how Sam Darnold was, he got three seasons with the New York Jets before they moved on and restarted. If the New York Giants have another season similar to what they had last season, if this team doesn't turn that corner, and they should turn that corner. They brought in so many free agents, so many different players that they should be a better team regardless. But if they don't end up making the playoffs in a weak division, if they don't end up showing that Daniel Jones actually has that potential and why they drafted a number six overall, I mean, if, if, if he doesn't rise to that occasion, then, I mean, it's done for. And I'll be honest, I think Daniel Jones is not going to rise to the occasion. Even with a good wide receiver corps, Kenny Galladay, Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram at the tight end, even with a good running back in Saquon Barkley, a decent offensive line, they drafted Andrew Thomas number four overall last season. Daniel Jones hasn't looked like a better quarterback. He hasn't looked like a developed and seasoned quarterback in my eyes, and I've seen him fall apart in just a ton of games. Uh, recently, the last game I saw him fall apart was against the Arizona Cardinals. I was watching that game live. He had 127 yards, completed just above half of his passes. He looked terrible. He doesn't look like a true number one leader. And in the NFL, you need a true leader for that quarterback position. Now, if I was the New York Giants, I'd move on. I, I, I wouldn't have drafted him number six, but... At this point, they're stuck with him. And and after this season, if he can't show up, if he can't prove that he is a talented top quarterback, if he can't put that New York Giants team into that playoff push, I mean, it might be time for them to reassess their quarterback situation and find somebody else. Because with all the moves that they've made, with the offensive line that was put together last year, I mean, Daniel Jones should have had success. But his turnover problem is continuing to be a problem. And even though he has shown flashes that he can get it done, flashes that he might be a good starting quarterback, he's not a a guy who's going to be able to dominate with the yards. I mean, he just hasn't shown that. And, and I might be wrong on Daniel Jones. I might be completely assessing him incorrectly. But I saw the talent and I saw the physicality and the rocket of an arm that Josh Allen had. I saw that he had the potential to develop, and I don't see that same potential in Daniel Jones. Now, they're not the same quarterback, so it's not a great comparison, but for Daniel Jones, I didn't see it in college, and I haven't seen it in the pros. Now, yes, he is a good average quarterback with a turnover problem, and average turnovers or average quarterbacks with turnover problems don't really have the most success in the NFL. Look at Jameis Winston. Now, his turnover problem is not nearly as egregious as Jameis Winston's was, but if Daniel Jones throws the ball at that level as much as Jameis Winston has, I'm not sure that that's different. I'm not sure they have a different turnover number from that 30-interception season that Jameis Winston had. 
So for Daniel Jones, I'm just not sold on him. And this is the season that he has to sell everybody. He has to sell his general manager who has given him the opportunity, who has believed in him wholeheartedly the whole way. He has to sell the owner who just spent so much money in free agency, brought in so many new weapons, so many new guys to to help Daniel Jones. He has to prove it to the world. And there's a lot of pressure on Daniel Jones this season, but it's rightfully earned. He's a top 10 NFL draft pick, and he has to rise to the occasion and prove that he can be that top 10 NFL draft pick. Number six overall draft pick quarterback can't be an average quarterback. You just can't use a number six overall draft pick to draft somebody average. And so far, that's what Daniel Jones has been. Now, do I think he's going to solve that fumbling problem? I don't think so. I've seen him hold the football. I've seen it's loose. He doesn't have a great grip on the ball. And whenever they get to his hands, whenever those big defensive linemen get to his hands, I mean, it's game over. He's just not strong enough physically to grasp that ball and and keep it in his possession. And it's shown. And it's shown the, the last few years that he hasn't been able to keep the fumbling problem down. Now, the fumbling problem is one issue amongst many. Can he make that deep throw? Can he hit the deep ball? I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen the great deep ball, but he's got a, a, an option now in John Ross, a guy who can run down the field and beat most guys in a foot race. He's got the guy that he can throw up jump balls to in Kenny Galladay. I mean, for Daniel Jones, he has the weapons around him. Now it's time to utilize them. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we've got a little bit more NFL to talk about. I want to talk about Teddy Bridgewater and what's next for him. Stay tuned. The Carolina Panthers have found their new quarterback in Sam Darnold. Now that leaves a lot more questions about the future of Teddy Bridgewater. Now, welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we talked a little bit about the NFL in the last segment. We talked about Daniel Jones and what he needed to do in this next year if he wanted to keep his career going. Now, For another quarterback, his career path is a little bit more blurry uh, than Daniel Jones's, and and that person is Teddy Bridgewater. Now, Teddy Bridgewater was the starting quarterback for the Panthers last season, and they went 5-11, which isn't very good. But Teddy Bridgewater didn't really have the worst season. Now, it wasn't great, 3,700 yards, 15 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, not great. But it wasn't bad. He completed about 70% of his passes. He didn't have the best weapons available. Mike Davis was the number one running back with Christian McCaffrey out. DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson both had good seasons, same as Curtis Samuel. So, I mean, the the weapons receiving-wise beyond that weren't great. But Teddy Bridgewater utilized them all pretty well. So why is Teddy Bridgewater getting replaced? Well, the Carolina Panthers didn't 100% believe in him as their future quarterback in the NFL. And it makes sense because quarterbacks need to show uh, that they have the talent and the potential to develop into a superstar Super Bowl quarterback. I mean, you need a Super Bowl level quarterback to go to a Super Bowl, to win a Super Bowl, whatever it may be. You need that high level quarterback play. And Teddy Bridgewater just hasn't had that high level quarterback play throughout his career. Now, he showed some potential last season in New Orleans, but with a full season on his plate, 
as a starting quarterback for the Panthers, it just didn't materialize. Now, yes, he completed a good amount of his passes. He was a good thrower, and he is a top 32 quarterback in the NFL without a doubt. But is there a path to a starting job for Teddy Bridgewater? I don't think so. Now, the first thing that needs to happen is Teddy Bridgewater either needs to get traded or bought out of his contract or cut. And this is really a tough situation for the Carolina Panthers because I'm looking down the list of teams that could potentially be interested in Teddy Bridgewater, and I can't find very many. Now, the Denver Broncos make a little bit of sense, but I would rather have them, if they're going to go quarterback, draft a quarterback. There's going to be quarterbacks available. They're one of the few teams that are now without a quarterback at this point in the offseason. I mean, most of the teams solve their quarterback problems. We know the Dolphins are going to stick with Tua. We know the Jets are going to go draft a quarterback at number two. The Panthers, they got their quarterback. The Rams, the Lions, the Colts, the Eagles. I mean, all of these teams have now secured their quarterbacks. The Bears say Fitzpatrick is going to start next season. Or excuse me, Andy Dalton is going to start next season. The football team says it's going to be Fitzpatrick. Most of these teams have found themselves quarterbacks. So the Denver Broncos could possibly let one of those guys slide. I mean, there's five top quarterbacks and only three teams that really look like they're going to draft right at the top. I mean, I think the number one overall draft pick is going to be Trevor Lawrence to the Jaguars, and then Zach Wilson, number two to the Jets. Number three is going to be a quarterback as well to the 49ers. Uh, What happens next? The number four spot for the Atlanta Falcons. I'll talk about that in a little bit. I think there's a lot of things that uh, that could go on with that. But as far as teams right now looking for veteran quarterbacks, I can't really put my finger on the team that really would be best suited for him. Now, if the Broncos decide that they don't like any of the quarterbacks draftable, maybe trade for Teddy Bridgewater. He's not going to be a huge asset to trade for. I mean, there's not a whole lot of competition of teams that are trying to trade for him. So the Broncos won't have to give up too much draft capital. They will have to eat that contract. But, I mean, other than the Broncos... I don't see many teams that really would want to trade for Teddy Bridgewater. And it's not that Teddy Bridgewater is not a good quarterback because he is a good quarterback, but other teams already have their plans in place. And trading for a guy like Teddy Bridgewater who's really not going to move the needle on a Super Bowl doesn't make a lot of sense. So for Teddy Bridgewater, I expect him to be cut, and I expect him to look in a couple directions for uh, the team that he wants to sign with. Now, obviously, the Denver Broncos... Uh, that's a team that he could potentially win the starting job. Uh, A quarterback battle between Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater, I think that goes Teddy Bridgewater's way uh, seven times out of ten. So uh, is it an upgrade? Yes, because of the experience Bridgewater has. Is he the better quarterback? Maybe not. Maybe Drew Locke can develop into a better quarterback than Bridgewater, but right now Bridgewater's the better quarterback. So if the Broncos are thinking in the now, Bridgewater's the right guy. If they're thinking in the future, Drew Locke probably is not the right guy either, but if they're thinking in the future, go for a quarterback in the draft. Outside of the Broncos, the Patriots have a potential if they want to have a quarterback battle between Cam Newton and Teddy Bridgewater. I think the Giants are a potential team if they want to bring somebody in to back up Daniel Jones, and if he doesn't really work out with the weapons that they brought in, throw Teddy Bridgewater into the mix. Uh, Outside of that, maybe the Saints could bring back Teddy Bridgewater and and see what kind of success he has. I think he's a better quarterback than Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill. So I think that's a possibility, but the odds of that happening are pretty low. 
for Teddy Bridgewater, there's not a direct path for him to be a starting quarterback, and that's unfortunate because he hasn't really earned himself a spot as as a top quarterback, but he's definitely shown that he's a top 32 quarterback. And, I mean, seemingly the top 32 quarterbacks in the NFL should be starting, but that's just not the case with teams developing quarterbacks, teams testing out to see if these guys work. For the Bears and the football team, I mean, I'm not sure how big of an upgrade Teddy Bridgewater would be over Andy Dalton or Ryan Fitzpatrick. I mean, maybe if they want to bring him in for a battle, sure, but I just don't really think Teddy Bridgewater is going to be a starter next season. I mean, unless he can find some way to get a job with Chicago or with Washington, I don't see it happening. The Broncos should have their eyes set on the future. They should have their eyes set on the draft. Most of these other teams already have their quarterback situation planned out and figured out. So for Teddy Bridgewater, he's the one guy who looks like he's going to get the short end of the deal. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about the Atlanta Falcons and the options that they have with the number four overall draft pick. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, we talked a little bit about Teddy Bridgewater in the last segment. I want to stay in the NFC South for this next segment and talk about the Atlanta Falcons because I am really intrigued with all the options that they have with the number four overall draft selection in this year's coming draft. Now, there's four options because the Atlanta Falcons are not really a team that is in rebuild mode quite yet. Matt Ryan has proven that he hasn't really aged out of the NFL. I mean, he had over 4,000 yards last season, 4,581. He had 26 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. I mean, he was a good quarterback last season, completing 65% of his passes. And this offense has still got a lot of firepower, still has a lot of weapons, Julio Jones had some injury problems last season, but I mean, at full health, Calvin Ridley, Russell Gage, Julio Jones, I mean, that is a great wide receiver corpse. They got Olamide, Zacchaeus. He's been good at that number four receiver. So as far as the Falcons go, I don't think they're completely in rebuild mode. They also have a decent defense, some young talent that is only going to continue to get better. Grady Jarrett has been very good. Dante Fowler, he's been good throughout his his time in the NFL. Deion Jones, Foyasade, Aluakun. I mean, they've got guys. They've got talent. So for Atlanta, they don't really have a direct path right now to anything, to, to a draft pick at number four, to anything in particular. But I think they have three different options. And, and these are the three different options that I'm going to lay out Uh, I think there's three ways that that the Atlanta Falcons can go with this next pick. And the first way is to draft a quarterback at number four overall. Now, I don't think just any quarterback is the right fit for the Atlanta Falcons. I think if they're going to draft a quarterback number four overall, it needs to be Trey Lance. Trey Lance is a very talented quarterback. I mean, we, we can't argue that. He's shown he's got a ton of talent. He hadn't had very many interception problems. I think that he is one of the more talented quarterbacks in the draft. Now, is he ready for the NFL? Absolutely not. He's not ready right now. He's going to take some time to develop. And for the Atlanta Falcons, Matt Ryan is the perfect guy to develop under. And Matt Ryan is still a good enough quarterback that 
he can go the next couple of years. Now, for Matt Ryan, if they do draft Trey Lance, it, it means that Matt Ryan has two years. It means that Matt Ryan has two years left, and then they're going to have to hand the keys over to Trey Lance. You can't waste a number one draft pick, a, a number four overall draft pick like that. So for the Atlanta Falcons, they need to make a decision. Is it Matt Ryan, or is it going to be the future? Because Matt Ryan, maybe he can get them to a Super Bowl, but for the last couple of years, it hasn't looked like it. Now, defensively, it looks like that's where most of their problems have arisen, but offensively, they could do way more to get better. I mean, as far as points scored last season, they were the third highest scored uh, team in the NFC South behind both the Saints and the Buccaneers. Now, yes, they weren't in the playoffs, but if the problem is their defense, then they would have scored more points. Uh, and, and the Atlanta Falcons need this reset. They need this reset because after that 28-3 to comeback in the Super Bowl, they haven't really had that same spark. They haven't had that same shine that they once had. So I think it's time for them to draft a new quarterback and go down that direction. That is what I would do if I was them. But if they don't want to go down that path, if they don't want to draft a quarterback and they think Matt Ryan is the guy, which is a very fair argument, a very fair assessment, 4,500 yards last season is is a far cry from from being old and washed up. So if they think Matt Ryan can still do it and they have the pieces to compete right now, then I think their best bet is bringing in Kyle Pitts. Now, Kyle Pitts is not the best wide receiver in the class, but he's the best tight end. And he's one of the best tight ends I've ever seen at the college level. He's fast, he's strong, he's big, he's got good hands. You could put him wherever you want on the field, whether that be at a wide receiver stand-up, or if you put him at tight end, he can block. I mean, everything about this kid is special. And if you put him into an offense with as many weapons, as much firepower as this Atlanta Falcons offense has, I mean, it could be completely devastating. I mean, just imagine if you look on the field and you see there's Julio Jones, there's Calvin Ridley, oh, and, and then there's Russell Gage, and then you look over, there's a two tight end set, Hayden Hurst and Kyle Pitts. That would be a devastating set for opposing defenses. Who do you double team? Do you tub- double team Julio Jones or the six foot six tight end? I mean, what is the options for defensive uh play callers when when you see those two big bodies get onto the field so if they do think that they could win I think Kyle Pitts is the guy who's going to be able to put them over the top Uh, I, I think Jamar Chase is great but they've already got really good wide receivers that are already similar to Jamar Chase Calvin Ridley's a good number one Julio Jones is also a great number one so they already have number one receivers a number one superstar tight end I think could be a huge difference maker for the Atlanta Falcons But if they don't want to go quarterback and they don't want to go tight end, I think they need to move down. And this wouldn't be a bad option either. If they don't think that anybody at that spot right there can really put them over the top and they just want to get more draft capital, more guys that can help the rebuild, help whatever they're trying to build, I I mean, I think that could be a good option. There are teams with high-level draft picks, i.e. the Denver Broncos, i.e. the Patriots that could potentially trade up And if one of those teams has their guy available at number four overall, which is very possible with five very good quarterbacks, one of those teams could move up and the Falcons could get a ton of draft capital, a future first round pick, I would assume, and a lot just to move down in the draft. And they would still be in good situation to draft 
somebody of value, whether that be a cornerback, a defensive back, somebody who can rush the passer and help that defense, whatever it may be, the Atlanta Falcons are able to get that hole filled in the top 10. Now, they would just have to move down a couple spots, but they would get a ton of draft capital, and, I mean, that would help them in the long run with more players and more opportunities to hit on those draft picks. So for the Atlanta Falcons, three options. Take a quarterback, in my opinion, Trey Lance at number four overall, or they could take Kyle Pitts, one of the best pass catchers that I've ever seen at the college level, or they could trade. Now, anything out of those three options, I really don't think is a great fit for the Atlanta Falcons. Now, could they bring in Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith? Sure. Those guys are going to help the team, but they're not going to be as devastating as a mismatch as, as Kyle Pitts is. I mean, nobody in the NFL has the size and athleticism to keep up with Kyle Pitts. He's a difference in, in that department for sure. And it's like watching LeBron James go out there and play tight end, which was a very real possibility at some point. So the Atlanta Falcons have a ton of different options. My opinion is they need to go with a quarterback. I don't think Matt Ryan is going to get it done, and I think there's a lot of really talented guys that they could pick in this draft that won't be available for them in future years. I mean, if they want to go through the quarterback rebuild in the next few years, who knows if they're going to be number four overall anytime soon. And floating around that number 10 to 18 pick is always the most dangerous. If you're drafting in that spot every single year, that's when you know there's a problem. Because you're never going to be able to really rebuild with a superstar unless you hit your draft picks on the on the head. And a lot of teams haven't been able to do that from that spot. So for the Atlanta Falcons, number four is the time. There's five quarterbacks in the draft who are going to go in probably the top 10 or 15 picks. The Atlanta Falcons need a quarterback for the future. Now, if they believe in Matt Ryan, they can still keep Matt Ryan as the starting quarterback and develop a guy like Trey Lance in the background. That's their best bet. I mean, that's the best thing that they can do. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a lot of baseball to talk about over the last half hour on the show. Stay tuned. There is a new cheating scandal in the MLB. What a surprise. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, in the MLB, there is once again another cheating scandal that the MLB is in charge of trying to take care of. Now, the MLB's history is littered with cheating scandals, the most recent coming from the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox when they win the World Series and were aided in doing so uh, by cheating. And this was stealing the pitches and giving them to their players before. So, obviously, they were stealing pitches, cheating. Stealing pitches is a little bit of a of a weird thing because it's legal to steal pitches, but it isn't legal to steal pitches the way that they were doing it. Now, there is a new cheating scandal in the MLB, and this time it's surrounding the pitchers in baseball. Now, Trevor Bauer, the former Cy Young Award winner, is now being investigated by the MLB for using foreign substances on multiple baseballs. Now, this is a big-time bummer for Trevor Bauer. And I'm going to break this down and why it's so ironic that this is happening to Trevor Bauer of all people. Well, Bauer has had a pretty long history of 
defending the pine tar use. And he's been doing a lot of research. It's very public that Trevor Bauer knows a ton about this foreign substance. But he always said he would never use it because he had integrity. Uh, because he didn't want to, or because he had morals. So for Trevor Bauer, he has now almost guaranteed gotten caught uh, using a foreign substance on these baseballs. And we saw last year, he, he's t- Trevor Bauer himself has talked about it all the time, about what using these foreign substances can do to the baseball and can do to the spin rate of a pitcher. Now, the spin rate is so important because if a ball spins over and over and over and over and over again on its head, uh, it's going to be harder to hit. It's going to have more spin. It's going to have more curve. It's going to have a bigger drop. I mean, whatever it may be, whatever the pitch may be, if there's a higher spin rate, it's going to be a harder pitch to hit. And Trevor Bauer himself has talked all about how this spin rate has has affected baseball and how you can see just pretty egregious times where pitchers' spin rates have rapidly spiked and, and they've become different pitchers. And he's attributed it to these foreign substances. Now, the MLB is looking at Trevor Bauer because, guess what? His spin rate during his Cy Young season skyrocketed. I mean, it skyrocketed, and there's good reason for it. Now that there's foreign substances found on his baseballs, this is grounds for him. I mean, he was cheating. I mean, he was cheating. He was putting a foreign substance on the baseball. That's what we've seen. Now, obviously, it was alleged that he was the one who doctored the baseball. There's no evidence that he was the one who put it on. But the baseballs that he was using did contain uh, this foreign substance. Now, the irony is is great because Trevor Bauer was one of the loudest people when it came to the Houston Astros cheating scandal. He was wearing socks with trash cans on them. He was making sure to make a lot of noise when it came to being anti-cheating. But by going with his anti-cheating ways and saying, oh, cheating is bad, he then went against what he was saying and now has has gotten caught cheating in a completely different way. So so my question is, if cheating was so bad in the first place, Trevor Bauer, why is it okay for you to do now? Now, he has said that pretty much every pitcher in baseball is doing this, is adding these foreign substances to the baseball to increase the spin rate. But Trevor Bauer is the one who got caught. Trevor Bauer is the one being investigated. And he had a long uh, spiel on Twitter the other day. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is he has encouraged the the pine tarring. He, he has explained it. He has investigated it. He has learned about it. And now he has gotten caught doing it. It's a pretty closed case for me. Obviously, the MLB is going to have to do a lot more investigating. But keep an eye on the next few outings for Trevor Bauer. Because this is what I'm going to venture is going to happen. I'm going to venture that Trevor Bauer is not going to pitch at the exact same level that he has pitched at. If he doesn't have this sticky substance to help him, if he doesn't have uh, these changed balls, then I don't think he's going to be able to pitch at the same level that he's been pitching at. And if his spin rate suddenly drops and suddenly catapults and Trevor Bauer finds himself back as the pitcher that he used to be, we all know why. It's because... He doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to get caught in the act of cheating because Trevor Bauer right now is not looking very good. And his agent has posted free pine tar, no more pine tar punishments. 
they have dug themselves such a deep hole. And even if Trevor Bauer is getting singled out, because there are a lot of pitchers that I believe are doing this that are cheating in the same way that Trevor Bauer is, even if Bauer is getting singled out, he has done this to himself. He has put himself in the public spotlight, criticizing, critiquing, talking about these illegal pine tar usage. And now he got caught using illegal pine tar. That's a problem. And for Trevor Bauer, the end of his career comes when he can't pitch anymore. And if the pine tar is the only reason that he was pitching at that same level, I mean, how long is he going to stick around for? How long are, are a lot of these pitchers going to be the same pitchers for? I mean, we've heard Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander have also done the same thing. When is this going to be dealt with? Obviously, the MLB didn't really deal with the trash can situation with the banging and, and the illegal sign stealing and all of that. None of it was dealt with by the MLB. So is this going to be dealt with by Rob Manfred? I think so. I think they're going to use him to set an example because Rob Manfred doesn't like Trevor Bauer. I mean, it's plain and simple that he doesn't. Trevor Bauer has been the most outspoken person against the MLB as far as MLB players go for a pretty long time now. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it that Trevor Bauer, Rob Manfred don't have the best situation. So if there is anything there, I think Trevor Bauer is going to get caught and he is going to be punished. Now, does he deserve to be punished more than the Houston Astros? Yes. Does the, do the Houston Astros deserve to be punished more than they were? Absolutely. The punishment needs to be suitable for the crime. And if Trevor Bauer won the Cy Young because of cheating and because of this illegal substance, his Cy Young should be taken away from him. I, I mean, the Dodgers would be able to probably reevaluate signing Trevor Bauer if it was, if it was uh, signaled that he cheated. And, and that's the reason why they signed him. I'm sure the Dodgers aren't going to try to do that with him pitching at a high level, but if he's unable to cheat and he can't pitch at that same level, the Dodgers have a good case to try to renegotiate and deal with that contract. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about the New York Mets and how they won on a hit-by-pitch. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. Right, we'll be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, our next topic is pretty similar to our last. The New York Mets cheated in a game against the Miami Marlins. Now, was their cheating anywhere near as egregious as Trevor Bauer? Absolutely not, but I'm going to break it down and why they won a game that they shouldn't have. Uh, so yesterday, the New York Mets faced off against the Miami Marlins, and in the top of the ninth inning, the Marlins had a 2-1 to lead heading into the bottom of the ninth against the Mets. So the Mets had the bottom of the ninth down by one. They had to come back and potentially win the game. That was, that, that was their plan. Well, the game started, or the inning started, the bottom of the ninth inning started with a Jeff McNeil home run. Jeff McNeil tied the game up on this home run. Big time play. Next play was uh, a McCann ground out. So one out, bottom of the ninth. We're going to go into extras if Miami can end this inning. So now comes up Guillermoore. Guillermoore goes up to the plate, hits an infield single, runs it out, makes it to first. Then Brandon Nimmo hits a double. Man on second, man on third. Francisco Lindor intentionally walked. 
So the bases are loaded, one out, bottom of the ninth, next run scores is the winner. And Michael Conforto stepped up to the plate. Now, Michael Conforto found himself into pretty bad pitch trouble early on, falling 0-2 in the count, then hitting off the next two pitches as foul balls. Now, the third or the fifth pitch of the at-bat, and still it was an 0-2 count, was a ball. So in a 1-2 count, Michael Conforto leaned into a pitch. Now, the rule for baseball doesn't say that you can't lean into a pitch, but it says that you have to avoid the pitch. And if you lean into it, that's doing the opposite of trying to avoid getting hit by a pitch. And Michael Conforto was hit by this pitch, and the umpire ruled him safe at first base on a hit-by-pitch. Meaning that this hit-by-pitch ended up being an RBI hit-by-pitch, and the Mets walked off and won off of an RBI hit-by-pitch that should have never happened. So let me break down this pitch for you. The final pitch in this game... Uh, was a slider right around 83 miles per hour, and it was right on the inside of the plate. Now, it was a little bit inside, but we have to keep in mind, this was a strike. This pitch was in the strike zone, and it was quite clear on the replay that Michael Conforto leaned into this pitch. I mean, it was really obvious that he leaned into the pitch, and that's what happened. So for the New York Mets, it didn't matter because you can't rule whether or not it was intentional, whether he leaned into the pitch or not. The only ruling the umpire could make after the fact was whether or not he did get hit by the pitch, which he did get hit by the pitch. So you couldn't rule to keep him on the plate and keep him batting in that situation. So the Miami Marlins, who are off to a pretty slow start, got the raw end of the deal against the New York Mets. And the Mets are going to need every single win they can have in a tough NL East but this one just doesn't feel as good. Michael Conforto clearly leaned into this pitch and tried to get hit by the pitch to win the game, and the umpire made a bad call. Now, the umpire later apologized, said that he made the bad call. He should have called to the strike since he leaned into the pitch that was inside of the strike zone. But, I mean, what can that do now? As long as the umpire understands the rule in the future, that's the big part, but the MLB has to do a better job of making sure that Teams don't get free wins. Yes, it is a 162-game season. Yes, there is a very lot of games to play. A ton of different things are going to happen throughout the season, and this is just a drop in the bucket. But when something like this happens, teams end up missing out. And if the Miami Marlins are on the edge of the playoffs and they're one win out of making the playoffs at the end of the season, well, we can look back at this and say, well... Should the Marlins have won this game? Now, they definitely didn't deserve to win it. They gave up that home run. It was a tie game, but they didn't deserve to lose it in that fashion. I mean, keep in mind, if that pitch would have been called a strike, Conforto strikes out, the bases are still loaded, but there's two outs. Only one more out, and the Miami Marlins have an opportunity to go into extras. The Marlins played that game well, but for the Mets, they ended up getting out of it luckily. And Michael Conforto ought to be ashamed of himself and what he did because it was quite clear that he leaned his shoulder in, he leaned his elbow to make sure that he just barely got hit by the pitch. And even though it's not fun, even though it's not a good way to end the game, that's just how it has to end. And for the New York Mets, they're going to move on to 2-2. Two and two. The Marlins move on to 1-6. and six. And if the Mets, who are a playoff caliber team, have been very good this, uh, had made a lot of moves uh, during this offseason, if they play up to the level they're supposed to, 
this win could potentially help them in playoff seeding. And I know one win isn't a lot, but down the line, it could really make a difference. And Michael Conforto winning this game in this way is the wrong way to do it. And for the Marlins, they should be upset. And I wouldn't be surprised if they came out. uh, I'm not sure if they're playing today. I think they are playing today. If they came out and threw the ball at Michael Conforto. Uh, They play tomorrow. So if the Marlins are really upset about that, which I think they probably will be, we might see some fireworks. We might see some drama tomorrow at 10 a.m. in the Miami Marlins at New York Mets game. So tune into that. I mean, once Michael Conforto steps up to the bat, I bet you these Miami Marlins pitchers are going to show him what a real hit-by-pitch looks like. Now, I'm not going to say that throwing intentionally at people is the right thing to do, but I'm not going to say that the Miami Marlins aren't going to do it. I think that if the Marlins are mad enough, which they lost the game in that way. It's not like they they didn't lose. They lost the game because of that hit-by-pitch. So the Marlins are going to be fired up They're going to be mad. I expect fireworks in this next game. Uh, The Marlins have some talent. Let's not forget that they were a playoff team last season. Even though they are off to a pretty rough start, they have some talent. Now, Jacob deGrom is going to make his second appearance, and Trevor Rogers for the Miami Marlins. It's probably going to be low scoring, but Miami's going to come out and do whatever they can to win this game. Jacob deGrom's a great pitcher, but Miami is heated. They are mad, and I would be mad too. I would hate to lose a game like that. I would hate to to lose to a rule that needs to be changed. I mean, the umpire should be able to look at that, should be able to judge whether or not he leaned into the pitch because, I mean, it was quite obvious that he did. And the MLB should have the ability to look at rule changes and look at these, these game changes in the footage to actually make sure that the game is going the way it's supposed to go. Because baseball is pretty cut straight and dry. There's not much you can do to overturn a call in the MLB. You can see exactly what the call is and exactly what the players are doing. It's it's not too hard to make those decisions. But the MLB is living in the past. I mean, their punishment of the Astros shows that. I think they're going to punish Trevor Bauer more than the Astros, which I don't think the punishment should be more than the Astros, but he definitely deserves a punishment that is worse than what the Astros got, if that makes any sense. Now, that's going to do it for Up for Debate today. Thank you all very much for tuning in. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Also, make sure to follow me on social media at the underscore Kate Reed, where I'll be posting different things about the show, updates, that kind of stuff. Uh, But I have uh, no more to talk about today, so I will see you guys next Monday.